At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W.A.B. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Rebecca Ware is a California-based director, dramaturg, and educator. She likes culturally specific pieces with big ideas about identity and politics distilled into compelling interpersonal relationships. Rebecca Ware is directing Kim's Convenience at Aurora Theater, a comedic play about a Korean-Canadian family living in an up-and-coming neighborhood in Toronto. And later this hour, she'll tell us more about the play that took Canada by storm and launched a popular Netflix show. Plus, our series, Speaking of Art, today features Atlanta multimedia artist Crystal Jin Kim. First, in our daily lives, we experience a rich symphony of sounds we often take for granted. The rustling of wind in trees, a cat purring, the pouring of a cup of coffee. The textured and layered orchestra of sounds that we barely notice is speaking to us all the time. Sam Green explores the phenomenon in his immersive film, 32 Sounds, with music by J.D. Sampson. The documentary screens on Friday, February 10th, at the first Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. Sam Green joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hello, and thank you for having me, and what a beautiful introduction. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well deserved. So what inspired you to make a film about sound? Ah, it's a good question, and I think... The last film I made was about a musical group called the Kronos Quartet. They're a famous classical quartet. And it, it made me think a lot about listening. And it also exposed me to a lot of people who are smart about sound, like John Cage and Pauline Oliveros, these avant-garde composers who really push the boundaries of music and sound in a, in a fascinating way. So making that film made me think a lot about sound. And the more I started thinking about sound, the more it struck me how rich it is and 
we go about our lives tuning most of it out, which we have to do. There's so much sound and noise. But if one can stop and, and pay attention and open their ears, I think there's a wonderful world of, of pleasure and meaning out there. Mm-hmm. Sam, was making this film transformational for you? It actually was. That's a good question, and the answer is heck yeah. I mean, by making it, I really did focus a lot on listening and a lot on sound and thinking about sound, and it did transform the way I think about sound and the way I move through the world, and and for the better, 100%. I mean, I think, like I said, the more one pays about attention to sound, the more pleasure and meaning you get, but it also sound, I think, is a way to bring yourself back to the present. You know, we are so often on devices or or engaged with talking to people halfway around the world. We really spend very little time just being in the present moment and listening, using your ears is a way to do that. So it it's almost become a, a meditation for me. And a lot of that was inspired by one of the main characters in the film, a woman named Anaya Lockwood, who I really love and is a, is a real delight and very smart about sound. Yeah, we'll talk more about her. In the film, you say that having power or not having power impacts what we hear, how we hear. Would you explain? Yeah, that was a, an idea I actually read about in an academic book about sound. There's a whole discipline called sound studies and people study sound and a lot of those people are really smart and this was an idea I'd not thought about, but it is true if if you consider it that the more power you have, the more you're able to control your sonic environment. And this article mentioned, and I thought this is really interesting, a lot of luxury cars in the ads, they tout themselves on how silent the ride is. You go through your day with total silence. For a lot of people, they don't have that luxury or that privilege, and they're exposed to a lot of noise. And in the article, it talked about the phenomenon of people who drive around with very loud, blasting loud stereos in their cars. And that's a whole subculture. And in a way that the article described this as this way of, of for people with probably less power, maybe less economic or social power in the world to inflict their sound on other people. You know, they drive around and you don't want to hear their sound necessarily as they're driving by, but you do, you have to. And so in a way, that's a a sort of power game as it were. Mm. But the whole idea was very interesting to me, that idea of having power shapes what we hear and what we don't hear. And that made me think of something Conversely, I loathe the sound of those leaf blowers. (laughs) Oh, they are infernal machines. And many of the people who use them, I would presume, are low-paid agricultural workers, landscape workers. They have to wear headphones to shield themselves. But I think about just how that noise is inflicted on them and what a statement that is about economic inequality or or disparity yep it really is true and that's the the exact point of that article i mentioned and the idea that 
those people do not have power and are not able to control the fact that they're living with a lot of sound that probably is is not healthy, actually. Mm. The producer, musician, and DJ, J.D. Sampson, provides music for the film. How did you two happen to collaborate? Well, I made a a live cinema piece for the Whitney Biennial, which is, you know, a museum show in New York a couple years ago. And the person who organized the show, I was looking for a musician to work with, and that person suggested JD. And I'd always been a big fan of JD's music. And so we got together and worked on that project and had a terrific time. JD's wonderful, and I love her music, and she's a dream to work with. So I asked if she would do this sound movie with me, and she said, yeah. So it's been great. JD is not only a great collaborator, but also a great muse. I like putting JD in front of the camera too. She's in the movie at several points and and that's fun because she's a terrific performer as well. There are moments when you ask audience members to close their eyes in order to pay closer attention to the sound. And it's such a captivating experience while wearing headphones. Would you talk more about why you include the immersive element to the film? Well, the closing your eyes, it's funny because making a film about sound is really challenging because film is primarily a visual media and uh it's hard to get people to once i have this feeling and i'm I'm, this is not my idea i'm sure other people have had it but you can really focus only on one sense at a time primarily and if you're looking at something very intently it's hard to actually listen intently too and so most of the time when we watch movies, I've found you watch movies in a pretty passive way. You let the sound wash over you. And there are different ways of listening. If you really pay attention with your ears, it's a much more meaningful experience. So figuring out how to make a film that had people really with their ears open and leaning forward is a huge challenge. And one of the th- devices I came up with was at points asking people to close their eyes which is radical in a film. I don't think I've ever seen any film that asks you to close your eyes because it's, it's sort of like closing the door on the main, you know, sense of film. But it, I found it is very effective, actually. If you close your eyes, you can really listen so much more. So that's that. And the other part of the question, the headphones, if you're making a film about sound, it's another challenge. How do you show it in all sorts of venues with different sound systems? Some movie theaters have great sound and some have terrible, and there would be no way to make a consistent experience and a really wonderful experience. So we early on, my producer had this idea, what about everybody wearing headphones? And I thought, wow, that's actually a great idea because you can have a consistent sonic experience that we can control and make sure is fantastic at every venue but it's also that really interesting thing about when you're 
listening to things on headphones, you're totally alone in the world. It's this very intimate experience. And when you're sitting in a movie theater, you're having this odd collective experience where you're sitting with strangers and you all go on a journey together. And by wearing headphones in the theater, you're combining those two in a really interesting way, I think. I like that to have both the collective experience and the intimate experience. So that was the idea be behind wearing headphones. And we have 500 sets of headphones that we travel around with. And if you come to the show on Friday, you will have your own pair of headphones that are really good headphones too. Very special. The film includes the relationship with sound of a deaf woman. What do we learn through her experience? Oh, wow. She, I, this is a sound artist who's deaf named Christine Sun Kim. She's pretty well known in the art world. And I watched some of her work, videos of some of her work and read some of her material and, and was just knocked out by her. She's so smart about sound. And one thing she, the early point she makes, you know, in her, some of her talks and stuff like that is a deaf sound artist. People would probably think like, how could that be? But she points out that for deaf people, deaf people think about sound much more than hearing people do because they have to navigate a world built around for hearing people. And we just, you know, have, don't have to give it any thought. We who are hearing people don't give it any thought. It's natural. We never really think about sound and how the world is geared for people who can hear. Christine Sun Kim has to struggle and navigate that every day, every moment of our life. So she knows much more about sound than we do. We hearing people do in, a, in an odd but interesting way. And so she has a lot to say about sound. And so I was very happy to film an interview with her and um, include her in the film because I think it's important. It, it broadens our sense of what sound is and how it acts because I think there's a lot of different ways of thinking about sound. And the more broad our perspective is on it, the, the richer it is. Yeah, it's a fascinating perspective to add to the documentary. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with director Sam Green. His film, 32 Sounds, screens at the First Center for the Arts this Friday, February 10th. Sam, are you familiar with the percussionist Evelyn Glennie? Of course. I love Evelyn Glennie. And at some point, it's funny because making 32 sounds was so fun and exciting because it's vast. Anything can fit in that. And one of the challenges was is trying to rein it, you know, keep it down to 32. But I had many ideas of different sounds and different people I wanted to interview. And she was definitely on the list because she's wonderful and very also very smart about sound and a remarkable performer and musician. Yeah, I spoke with her decades ago. She was performing here with the Atlanta Symphony, and her initial experience with sound, she explains, is through her feet. Yeah, it's yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 
She also really broadens how we think about sound, I think. Sound as a physical, a completely physical phenomenon, which it is. Mm-hmm. A few 20th century songs included in the film are In the Air Tonight by <laughs> Phil Collins, Ain't No Stopping Us Now by McFadden and Whitehead, and I Feel Love by Donna Summer. Yeah. Why those songs in particular? Well, it's funny because in the air tonight, in the film, there's a little section about a guy who drives around New York City very late at night with an incredibly powerful stereo blasting that song. And I, a number of years ago, I have a small child and uh, my son would be asleep and that guy would drive by our house at two in the morning blasting in the air tonight and wake our kid up, you know, and I was I was pretty outraged about it. But then at a certain point, I thought, really, after I read that article that we talked about, about sound and power, I thought, wow, it's a very interesting phenomenon, actually. I mean, I took it personally. It bothered me because it woke my kid. But apart from that, it's, it's actually interesting the way people do that and the power dynamics at play with somebody driving around late at night blasting a stereo. So I got in touch with that guy, and he was wonderful. Don Garcia. And so I filmed with him and did an interview. And so that was really fun to include in the movie. And Ain't No Stopping Us Now is another great song in the movie, which there's a section about a friend of mine who lived in Cuba. And I made a mixtape for her of some songs she had mentioned to me that were meaningful to her. And I filmed her face as she listened to them and had memories wash over her and was transported to other times. And so that was one of the songs on that mixtape. And so it's it's very dear to me, that song, because of my connections, I've now connected it with her. You know, songs are so powerful in that they, they root us in other places and times and with other people. Indeed. That friend was Nihanda Obayodam. Yep, yep. Member of the Black Liberation Army. Although you interview a number of composers, musicians, and sound artists, the New Zealand-born composer you mentioned, Anea Lockwood, is one of the outstanding interviews. Would you talk about her work with sound? Yeah, it's funny because a lot of this movie happened during the pandemic, and I tour around a lot with musicians and show films. And and I was touring a lot with the film I made about the Kronos Quartet. And the Kronos Quartet plays a live soundtrack to that. So we go from city to city. And I had all these screenings booked for early 2020. And the pandemic happened and everything was canceled. So I had a lot of time. And I was reading a book that had a mention in it about a a composer named Anaya Lockwood, who has recorded The Sound of Rivers for 50 years. And I thought, wow, because I love The Sound of Rivers. And I thought, wow, who is that? I'd never heard of her. And so I just started Googling her. And she is a, in her 80s. She's been an avant-garde composer making really interesting work for more than 60 years, or about 60 years. And so I learned a lot about her, and I listened to lots of her music that's on YouTube. And I just wrote her an email out of the blue. And, you know, she was at home just like I was at home. And I said, could we talk on Skype at some point? She said, sure. And so 
we just started talking and I had a delightful time talking to her. She's really wonderful and said, hey, could I keep in touch with you? And so every couple of weeks I'd ask to talk to her. And as I was working on this movie, she became a real central part of it. And she's not only a lovely person, but she's one of the smartest people about sound I know and has this very sophisticated idea about sound and how interconnected we are with the world through sound is just a real serious listener. She has great ears. And so she was became a wonderful friend through all that and a real inspiration. She's a great muse. So she's sort of one of the central characters in the film. Yeah. And you also included a Foley artist. We know. Oh, about. yeah. We certainly are familiar with them from radio history. The Foley artist. Yeah. Cre recreate sound for film. In the old days, they did it for radio. And this is just fascinating to watch. Would you describe just a few examples of Foley artists recreating sound in your film? Yeah. So if anybody doesn't know, Foley is um, a kind of art in, in films, mostly fiction films, where when a big Hollywood movie gets filmed, a lot of times they don't use the sound that was recorded in that moment. They recreate it later. So if somebody's walking down a hall, they have a Foley artist recreate the sound of footsteps later because it just ends up being better. And so Foley artists are these fascinating people whose job is to make sounds that match what's on a screen. And I've always been really intrigued by Foley, you know, because it seems fun to do and it's kind of mysterious. There's also this thing that in Foley, usually they use different sounds. They make the sound differently. So, you know, if somebody breaks an arm, it's like they snap celery and that sounds more like a bone break than a bone break does, you know? So there's this odd thing about realness in sound and non-realness. So we filmed with a woman named Joanna Fang, who's a Foley artist and lives in San Diego. And she was wonderful. She did all sorts of sounds for us. And in the film, there's a, a kind of reoccurring motif of a tree falling, and it shows up several times in the film, and she does Foley for it, and you can see her doing it, and, and it's wonderful. She uses like a chair scraping on the floor and sort of like magnetic tape rustling. She uses all these crazy things that you wouldn't think would translate into the sound of a tree falling, but at the end it all comes together and you realize, wow, she she made something that's remarkably like a tree falling using all these disparate elements. So Foley is wonderful and it's kind of a performance of a combination of music. You know, they're almost like musicians and dance and sound art. It's wonderful. I, if I had five lives, one, I might be a Foley artist. <laughs> yeah, certainly in the way they conceptualize sound and are able to translate it for the rest of us. Yeah. The title of your film, 32 Sounds, pays tribute to an earlier documentary. Would you talk about why you titled this film 32 Sounds? Yeah, uh, one of my favorite films in the whole world is called 32 Short Films About Glenn Gould. And Glenn Gould, for people who don't know, is a famous Canadian pianist. And this is a movie that came out in, I believe, the 90s by a Canadian filmmaker. It's a documentary 
And it is a, a portrait of Glenn Gould just in 32 different snippets, little vignettes. And they're all kinds of different, some use actors, some are documentary, some are even animation. And so it's this sort of collage portrait. And I love that film. One of the reasons I love it is that most biopics are so clunky and cliche. You know, they always start with the, the hero in this poignant moment and then flash back to the person's life and then come back to that moment. You know, like the Johnny Cash biopic does that. Many do, and they're usually, like I said, they strike me as very clunky because most people's lives are far too messy to fit into a neat formula like that. And so I appreciated 32 short films about Glenn Gould because it acknowledged the complexity of Glenn Gould and the, the, the impossibility of summing somebody up in anything other than bits and pieces. And so when I was making a film about sound, when I started, I thought there's no way I can make an authoritative or definitive movie about sound. All I can make is a very subjective portrait of sound or my interest in sound through bits and pieces. So that seemed like it made sense to do it in little short sections. 32 is a good number. And I liked nodding, you know, giving this nod to that film I loved, which in turn was giving a nod to a famous piece of music that it was based on that had 32 different sections. So I like that way in which art sort of reverberates through the ages and people are inspired by works to make something new. And that's, a, that's an idea I really like. And I hope your work here inspires more people to check out that film and Glenn Gould's recording. Yes, yes. Glenn Gould was such an extraordinary pianist and oh, yeah. way too young. Yeah. There's a touching montage of voices of friends and family near the end of 32 Sounds. Sam, how many cassette tapes did you find in your home that provided that montage? The film sort of goes into this, but I, for many years, saved voicemail messages. And for people over a certain age, you remember voicemail, you know, long time ago, you had this little machine with a tape <laughs> in it, and you'd come home and play it. And after that, it became a, a digital thing on your phone, you'd call in and get your voicemail. And nobody really uses that anymore. But for many years, they did. And for some reason, I always saved voicemail, even when it was in the old tape days, I would record them onto another tape, cassette tape. And so in my old box of old stuff in my closet, I have many tapes, cassette tapes with voicemail memos and voice messages on them. And so at a certain point, I was thinking about these because a lot of the people I have voicemail from are no longer here. And some of them are very dear to me. And it gets to this idea that you can look at an old photo of somebody and it kind of brings them back in a certain way. But if you hear the voice of somebody who you loved, who is no longer here, it really brings them back in a way that even talking about it, you know, gives me a little bit of goosebumps. You know, it's, it's powerful and there's a kind of magic to that. And so towards the end of the film, I play some of those voicemail messages and it's a, it's hard to even talk about that still. There's those, those sounds are powerful sounds and I'm sure many people have similar 
kinds of sounds in their own lives. Director Sam Green, 32 Sounds, screens this Friday, February 10th, at the first Center for the Arts located on the campus of Georgia Tech. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the comedic play that inspired the hit Netflix series, Kim's Convenience. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The hit play that took Canada by storm and launched a popular Netflix show has arrived in the Atlanta area. Kim's Convenience is a comedic play about a Korean-Canadian family living in an up-and-coming neighborhood in Toronto. The show is on stage at Aurora Theatre in Lawrenceville through February 19th, and will move to Horizon Theatre in Atlanta's Little Five Points neighborhood beginning March 3rd. Stage director Rebecca Weir joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. What dilemma faces Mr. Kim and underpins the story in this play? Hmm. In this story, Mr. Kim is grappling with what to do with his convenience store. The surrounding area is being developed and gentrified. And he is wondering as he gets older, what will happen with the store, which of course is a metaphor as well for what his legacy will be and what he will leave as he continues on. Mm. Both the play Kim's Convenience and the Netflix series have been very successful. Rebecca, what do you think accounts for their popularity? <laughs> that is a great question, Lois. And you know, I've never seen the television show, so unfortunately, I can't speak to that precisely. But I can tell you part of what I love about this play is that I think that it holds simultaneously both the challenges of lived experience and also the joys and the playfulness that we all can hold. 
the lead actor, Jimmy, who's phenomenal, he's playing, of course, Mr. Kim, Appa. He talks specifically how about how a lot of second generation plays talk about the trauma that's been inflicted upon them by their parents' immigration processes. And what's really amazing about Kim's convenience is that it acknowledges that and also talks about the playfulness and the joy that family ties can offer us nonetheless. So important. Do you personally connect, if at all, with the story or the family depicted in Kim's Convenience? You know, in some ways I do, absolutely. And I think that Again, part of what is really incredible about this piece is that I actually think that everyone who comes to see it will be able to connect with it, regardless of whether or not they're a second generation Korean individual or regardless of whether or not they have a challenging family dynamic. I think that there's really something for everyone to connect with here. And that is certainly what I've been hearing from audiences. Mm. Well, I've watched episodes on Netflix and so enjoyed the series. It's endearing. It's uplifting. I realize you haven't watched the TV series, but I'm, I'm wondering if the tone of the play is upbeat. Yes, definitely at times. I mean... I think that the tone of this play runs the gamut. It's not a straightforward sort of 90-minute version of a sitcom where it's like a three-part joke or a three-line joke like every 60 seconds, you know? There are definitely some more heartfelt moments and some moments where we see characters struggling with different challenges, but I think that it's super warm. It's super inviting. It's super playful. And I think that, yes, tonally it is, I mean, (laughs) to me, totally, it's very comedic and I think it'll be accessible to everybody who wants to have a fun night out. Mm. Now a practical question. How do you bring the convenience store aisles to life in this play? Well, (laughs) we have an amazing team working on this show. So the Curly Clays are phenomenal set designers. And this is excitingly my second collaboration with them in the Atlanta area. And I knew as soon as I got hired to work on this that I wanted to work again with them because I just admire their work so much. So they have created a delightful set for us to just play and explore and like gallivant around on. And then we also had an incredible props designer, Kristen Talley, who was relentless in her work to incorporate different Korean delights and also different convenience store items. Um, So she was phenomenal. And then, of course, there's an amazing team at Aurora, everyone from the TD to the production manager to the scenic charge. So people who were painting and building and sourcing and putting everything together. So it really took a team effort. And now the actors and I get the incredible privilege to just play in the playground that they've made us. 
<laughs> Please tell us about the Korean translation for the show. So I really admire the producing artistic director and one of the co-founders of Aurora Theater, Anne Carol Pence, for many reasons. And among them is that when Anne Carol and I first started talking about this play, she talked with me about how she really wanted to use this piece as a way to welcome some of the local Korean community who perhaps did not previously have a relationship with Aurora Theater. And because there are so many Korean immigrant, Korean diasporic, and now Korean Americans in Gwinnett County, and you know, Lois, I would have to double check the latest numbers on this, but I think according to the 2010 census, Korean is the third most commonly spoken language in Gwinnett. Because there's sort of this stronghold of Korean individuals in the surrounding area, she wanted to make sure that the work was really accessible. And so one of her amazing ideas that I think she came up with in collaboration with one of her board members was that the entire piece be translated into Korean and then we super title it and project it onto the set for the entire show. And so this allows us to and encourages us to invite people who maybe are not native English speakers or who maybe don't speak English and invite them into the theater so that um, maybe people who would identify more closely with Appa, Mr. Kim, or be even older than that can still partake in the, in the piece and get the full experience. Oh, I think that's wonderful. Have you heard from Korean Americans responding to the play? Mm. You know, I, <laughs> one of the funny things about being a freelance theater director is that you leave after opening night. Um, <laughs> so I always, you know, try to eavesdrop a little bit in the lobby during previews or something and just kind of get the general tenor of the audience. I have not been blessed to hear direct feedback from anybody super specifically, but I have heard tell through people at Aurora who have heard directly from local Korean Americans that they've actually been really moved by how much they saw their own family on stage and some of the dynamics of their own family or how much they related to some of the characters on stage. Well, I think that's some meaningful feedback. Rebecca, what more would you like to see happen regarding stories that are being told about experiences in the Asian diaspora? Ooh, Lois, what a question. Well, <laughs> I was just thinking about Pachinko, and I so admire Minjin Lee, mm. and a comedy like Kim's Convenience still has poignant moments and enough heft, as you suggested. How else can we hear more? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the things that some theaters are starting to recognize now, I think probably especially in response to the anti-Asian violence that we've seen in the last few years, is how important it is to have all different kinds of Asian voices on stage. And, you know, I see 
I see people who are hungry for this everywhere. I see it in my students. I'm a professor, so I see it in my students. I see it in people that I talk to at coffee shops. I think that these kinds of stories people are excited about. And I think it's about like recognizing that there is many ways to tell these stories and as many different stories to tell as there are individuals. And, you know, one of the things that Asian Americans, and when I say Asian Americans, I'm sort of including Asian Canadians in that as well, but also acknowledging that they have their own history. But one of the things that the Asian American movement has been grappling with, as scholar Lisa Lowe talks about, is this monolithic identity, right? This idea that Asian Americans are not just a model minority, but they all come from a specific kind of wealth or a specific kind of education. And when we begin to trace immigration law back into the 1980s, the 1960s and before, we see why these myths have been created. But I think it's just as important that we get the chance to play with a huge range of not just representation, though I think that is absolutely the first step, but also thinking about meaningful change beyond representation and starting to think about the labor that goes into theater, starting to think about how if we want to create this work, we actually often need additional resources or additional time thinking about it in terms of training. So thinking about it in terms of preparatory programs in high school and college. And we have an incredible plethora of playwrights out there who are writing vibrant, dynamic, subtle, hilarious, hysterical, furious work. And now I think it's about considering how we can produce more of it and engage with it on its own terms, as opposed to the preconceived notions that we might be coming in with. Kim's convenience has been hailed as an incredible achievement in diversity. Do you agree? One of the things that I think is really exciting about this piece is that it actually shows a working class Korean Canadian family. And I think that we are really drawn to narratives of like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, success that lead to a kind of financial stability that I don't think we necessarily see this family in. And so I think that there's diversity operating in a couple different ways in this show in ways that are exciting. I also think that this show has really launched some individuals' careers, which has been really phenomenal. And I guess the questions to me are about thinking about this from a historical perspective. You know, there has been We've had Asian American stars before and U.S. Asian U.S. stars before. We've had people, you know, going back into the early 1900s. We've had plays grappling with questions of representation on stage since the 1960s and before. And so I guess I don't necessarily think of diversity as something to be achieved, but something to be always considering and I'm always eager for more. 
And at the same time, I want to celebrate the conversations that Kim's Convenience has been able to give rise to. Stage director Rebecca Ware. Kim's Convenience is on stage through February 19th at Aurora Theater in Lawrenceville and will move to Horizon Theater in Little Five Points beginning March 3rd. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series Speaking of Art, today featuring multimedia artist Crystal Jin Kim, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Crystal Jin Kim, and I am a filmmaker and artist. I do a number of things, including photography, and writing and directing narrative films. I love to draw and paint a mix of figurative and abstract subjects, often faces, gestures, and elements of nature, usually with pencil or ink, charcoal, and watercolor or acrylic paint. I do some three-dimensional work that's mostly functional ceramics, and I also work with Mother of Pearl, which is the iridescent colorful layer inside certain types of shells. It's as thin as paper and very brittle, and I cut the mother of pearl into shards with a small blade and place them onto a larger painting I do on wood panel. The mother of pearl is also translucent, so I play with layering it over different painted colors, shapes, and styles of mark making. This is inspired by the Korean traditional craft of Najan Chirigi, which goes back thousands of years but I'm reinterpreting this into a contemporary context. I've always loved making art and I've been creating for as long as I can remember. I think drawing and writing were probably my earliest forms of my creative practice and later I also adopted photography and and directing as well. I went to Northwestern University and studied art and film as a double major and uh, continued my arts practice after I moved back to Georgia. My Mother of Pearl series started in 2020 when I was at home and just thinking about all these different things that are, are precious to me and objects that I have and one of which is this small table that sits on the floor that I've used since I was a little kid. It's faux mother of pearl, um, and it's done in the style of the traditional Korean art that goes back thousands of years. It was originally for royalty, but has become more commonplace as a precious object that many families will save up to afford in the form of a table or a cabinet or a jewelry box or things like that. This faux mother of pearl small table is is commonplace also amongst Korean American immigrant families. Honestly, I find inspiration and motivation in so many different forms, 
whether it's the material itself, just the kind of marks that I can make with paint or the mother of pearl, every single shard is different. Even the opposite side of a single shard is different. And I've learned to practice working intuitively while having a, a greater ultimate plan for, for each piece. I'm always learning as I'm creating. I'm also inspired by Korean imagery. I continuously learn just by looking at light, by looking at nature and color and trying to just explore one facet at a time. I love living in Atlanta. I was born in Atlanta and grew up in Marietta and I think it's just such a wonderful place with all of its diversity and cultural significance. There's so much potential and I'm thankful to know so many fellow creatives here and wonderful people who are just so willing to help each other. I'm also inspired by other artists and I love going to Plaza Theater, to White Space, Mint Gallery, Swan Coach House. There are just so many spaces I love, love visiting around Atlanta to get inspired, to look at work, to support my friends who are artists and filmmakers here. And the best way to stay tuned to the different things I'm doing and creating is to find me on Instagram at Crystal Jin Kim. I'd love to connect with you. Multimedia artist Crystal Jin Kim and our series Speaking of Art. More information about Kim's work as well as our entire Speaking Of series is on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. The U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Limon is giving a free reading at Emory this Saturday at 3 p.m. Limon is the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States and the first Latina to hold that honor. She's the author of six poetry collections, including her most recent, The Hurting Kind. Some days, dishes piled in the sink, books littering the coffee table, are harder than others. Today, my head is packed with cockroaches, dizziness, and everywhere it hurts, venom in the jaw, behind the eyes, between the blades. Still, the dog is snoring on my right, the cat on my left. Outside, all those red buds are just getting good. I tell a friend, the body is so body, and she nods. I used to like the darkest stories, the bleak snippets someone would toss out about just how bad it could get. My stepfather told me a story about when he lived on the streets as a kid, how he'd some nights sleep under the grill at a fast food restaurant until both he and his buddy got fired. I used to like that story for some reason, something in me that believed in overcoming. But right now, all I want is a story about human kindness. The way once, when I couldn't stop crying because I was 15 and heartbroken, he came in and made me eat a small pizza he'd cut up into tiny bites until the tears stopped. Maybe I was just hungry, I said. 
and he nodded, holding out the last piece. The reading event is free and open to the public in the Glenn Memorial Auditorium on the Emory University campus. More information is available at news.emory.edu. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the new exhibition, The Necessity of Seduction, on view at the Echo Contemporary. Plus, our Speaking Up series is expanding, and we'll highlight Leo Briggs for our Speaking of Dance premiere. City Light senior producer is Kim Trobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.